Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Fire You Can't Put Out. My name is Melvin, episode number 313, and I want to thank everybody so much for being here. So we are in the middle of Pride Month, and I want to make sure to highlight the reason why this month is so important. So we recently had the president decide that that rights should be taken away from trans individuals, and it's just one more thing that makes me certain that he doesn't have a core. He doesn't really have anything that he believes in. And he does this, he does what he does, just to get as many of the homophobes uh, and religious zealots on board as possible. And that's really all he cares about. And last week really was no exception. So he says, you know what, if you're trans, you're not going to be protected anymore under the Obamacare thing. And, he's, and, then, and then two days later, we get this 50-state ruling about how gay people cannot be discriminated against. And it was, I remember when the Supreme Court decided to take this case, and because it's effectively Trump's court, I said anytime they decide to take one of these cases – that is because they, and the Chief Justice gets the ultimate word, that is because they are going to snatch some rights away from gay people. And that wasn't what happened at all. John Roberts, who has surprised us in the past, surprised us again, but then Gorsuch decided to surprise us and say, no, 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 we're going to take the, the law at its written word and that's it. We're not going to try to read into it. And if you take it at its plain text, then you can't discriminate against gay people. And I, I almost wonder if the president knew that that was going to come down and it was going to overturn his executive order removing trans protections. But everything that the president does is a dog whistle. And I want to make sure that everyone understands that because on the very day, that he decided to strip away trans protections. That was the anniversary of the Pulse nightclub massacre, where 49 people were slain and, and dozens more were injured. And it was an anti-gay attack. Everything that the president does is a dog whistle. And I don't think that he's smart enough to think of these things on his own. His people hear the messages loud and clear. Racism, homophobia, misogyny, they hear it loud and clear. But the rest of us, we got to dig a little to figure out what this is. And I'm pretty sure that it's Stephen Miller inside the White House that goes, oh, look. And for, and for Stephen Miller, you know, that day, the Pulse nightclub massacre, considering what a raging homophobe he is, is, is probably a holiday for him, just like so many others. So things are getting better. The Supreme Court decision was a nice surprise and during Pride Month an even nicer surprise. But even though things on one hand are getting better here in the good old U.S. of A., on the other hand, they're not. A, because religious bigotry still rules the day. And it does because there are plenty of conservatives in Congress, whether they believe in religious bigotry or not, who are absolutely willing 
to legislate in the name of religious bigotry. You may remember Larry Craig from Idaho. This was his thing. He was gay, but he was quiet because he loves his wife. He really loves his wife. But then he tried to hook up with a dude in a Minneapolis airport bathroom. And uh, Mike Rogers, the gay blogger back then, I remember him saying, look, I got a whole list of, of conservatives who are um, who write anti-gay legislation who are also gay themselves. Because when it comes to being honest with themselves or, or getting the votes you know, for, these, for these corporatist policies, they're always going to go for whatever gets them those corporatist policies. So we got the good decision. Yes. But we still have lots and lots of these raging homophobes, not just among us, but actually in charge. So I want to bring to you today a story that I read about in the New York Times that I have been absolutely unable to get out of my head since I read it. And it's a story about a woman named Sarah Hagazi. So... Quoting here from the article, when the openly gay frontman of a hugely popular Lebanese group strutted out onto the stage of a Cairo summer festival in 2017, rainbow flags lifted into the air and something sparked inside of Sarah Hagazi. As a lesbian in a country where homosexuality is taboo and gay people are routinely persecuted by the authorities, here was a glimmer of freedom beaming with joy. She raised both hands in the air and hoisted her own rainbow flag aloft. And it was a moment that her friend captured on camera. And it was the beginning. So it was this moment of freedom for her. Just think about you, who you, re- you realize who you are. And the feeling, the good feelings that come along with that start setting in. And that happened to her, but it was also the start of her undoing. Quoting again, a storm of public outrage over the rainbow flags erupted on social media and was whipped up by Egypt's thunderous TV talk show host. Police raids followed. Dozens of people were arrested, including Miss Hagazi. The start of of a desperate trajectory marked with violence, despair, and exile culminated into a tragedy this past Saturday. When the 30-year-old, the now 30-year-old Egyptian decided to take her life in Canada. So she was, after this incident at the concert, where she threw up the rainbow flag along with so many others, and the deeply religious, wildly anti-gay Egypt, she was one of the people that was picked up, arrested, tortured, and she left the country. But they never stopped coming after her. And the deep shame that had been culminated within her over her entire life for even thinking this way, for even feeling this way, finally became too much. And I'm not sure if you've noticed as of late, and it's hard to know how much of this played a role, but the world's been a little bit topsy-turvy as of late. The overwhelming majority of us have, have been asked to stay indoors and not go see people. And there's been tons of bad news. And there's been murder hornets. And, I mean, I'm just, 
extrapolating here. And I think the world, which had already came down too heavy on her, just began to look like a place of hopelessness and despair. And it's been just, a, just over a week since Sarah Hagazi decided to kill herself. I remember the first time that I realized who I was. Now, I'm not gay. I'm straight, but I'm definitely not a good male in my species. <laughs> I, am, I am not the things that you expect from a male. Uh, I am very festive. I throw my hands around a lot. I make lots of silly voices. I say things like, girlfriend. And it's not, it's not a gay... I just don't like the things that come along um, largely with being a macho American male. So although I am a male, and a straight one at that, I don't know why I have to fit into these little molds. I remember as a young man putting on a dress. Oh, I can't believe I'm saying this. And I was probably 15 years old, 14, 15 years old. And I remember going, oh my God, I'm going to get shot or something. I'm not supposed to be wearing this. But then I did it. And I wore it around. And I wore it to band practice. I was in a punk band at that time. And I wore it to school. And it was just a, this freedom. And I was in this circle of people that accepted me for who I was. And of course, the wrong person saw me. I remember him from high school. His name was Ryan. I'd love to throw his last name out right now, but pretty sure he's a private individual and I could get sued for that. But I remember when Ryan saw me in that dress and he never, ever, ever stopped harassing me. And it's not like I wore it every day. He saw me in it once and I made sure to largely stay away from public spaces when I wore it. And once again, it wasn't about being gay. I go, I don't understand why boys can't wear dresses. I was just blurring all these lines that I was not supposed to blur. He harassed me. He threatened to beat me up. He beat up some of my friends. He found out where I lived. He drove by my house and yelled homophobic things at me. Sometimes my dad would be sitting on the porch when he did that. Eventually my dad heard the things he said, kind of put two and two together, saw dresses in my closet, and realized those didn't belong to girlfriends of mine. And then my dad had to have the talk with me. What is it with you faggots? Oh, goodness gracious. That's not what it is, Dad. I said, I'm not gay. I'm just a boy in a dress. No, goddamn faggots. Do you like men? Do you, do you look at me when I get undressed? And God, love, fudge off, Dad. No. But I wouldn't take it back. Because I remember that fabulous feeling that came with it. And I'd do it again. But <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm married now. And my wife isn't into that stuff. But if she wanted her husband to wear a dress, I would do it in a heartbeat. The other thing that was important to me was showing people because we we uh, women are so often considered as second-class citizens and lower on the rung and they're paid less and and all of the names all of the terrible names that we have to describe weakness are all names that are associated overwhelmingly 
with woman, like bitch and pussy, and it's all misogyny writ large. And I wanted to be also say that you shouldn't feel shame. There is no shame with feeling this way. There's no shame with wearing these clothes. No, I didn't have a coming out story, but I had a becoming fabulous story. And, and so I know, not entirely for Sarah, because Sarah was, Sarah Hagazi was gay, but I, I remember the feeling, the good feeling, the liberation, and just blasting through those barriers. And there's a lot of trans kids now that are pretty sure that they weren't supposed to be born as this gender. And they, they, they feel like they're this gender. Or they feel like they're a mix of both genders. And I love the blurring of the gender lines it goes on because gender roles, these strict social constructs that we have, never made sense to me then. And I'm older, which means I'm supposed to be more conservative. But I don't... It, those, those strict gender roles don't make any sense to me now. The fact that this just happened to her and she, in her, her final words, in a handwritten note, um, in a short poignant quoting here, handwritten note, um, Sarah Bagazi begged forgiveness for her action from her three siblings and her friends. She says the experience has been harsh, and she wrote, and I am too weak to resist. She saved her final words for her persecutors. To the world, she wrote, you have been greatly cruel, but I forgive. And just like that, she's gone. And we lost another one at age 30, who shouldn't be gone because she decided to tell the world who she was. And it's happening every day. And we don't always know their names and we don't always know their stories, but that doesn't make them or their stories any less important. And she says that she is too weak to resist. So for her... And for everyone else in the LGBTQ community that feels this way, that you, that, and we're not all public people, that you feel like you're too weak to resist. I am not. And I will do this for you and every other persecuted human being on the planet. It's a goddamn shame that we had to lose another one of them to religious bigotry. When, as we are so often told, when will religion finally become something that is at all life-affirming and not just a source of human destruction on the planet? But I digress. Shifting gears here, but still apropos a little bit, because we are going to talk about a raging homophobe. Let's talk about the unwinding that happened in Tulsa. So think about this for a minute. Um, another dog whistle move by the American president, Mr. Trump, was that in one of the cities that saw the burning of Black Wall Street, 
in something like a 14-hour period where white people back 100 years ago destroyed an entire sit- section of the city. Now, remember, black people are being, are being chastised right now because in the middle of these peaceful riots, you'll occasionally find an opportunist who is completely cool with burning down a building you know, or setting a car on fire or destroying this or destroying that. But when these, when these racist neo-Nazi white people came through town and did it in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because they were jealous of how well black people were doing in that section of the city, well, it was A-OK back then. And so that's what, especially what that section of Tulsa, Oklahoma became known for. And then on Juneteenth, the tone-deaf president, probably once again taking a cue from Stephen Miller, decided that on Juneteenth he was going to go to Tulsa and hold one of his Klan rallies. And after enough public pressure, finally decided not to. Finally decided to hold it the following Saturday, which made way more goddamn sense. And then the request for tickets started coming in. And initially they got 800,000 and then over a million ticket requests and they built an entire overflow area for all the people that were requesting tickets. And in a 19,200 seat arena, roughly about 6,200 people ended up showing up for his rally. Now, initially there was cause for celebration for me because I go, look at that. People are falling off of his BS, but... There's a lot of different factors here. The first one that we know about is that a bunch of K-pop fans who are done with his BS and a bunch of TikTokers decided to make a request for those tickets, which is why in Tulsa they built an entire second area for the overflow, where the president and the vice president were going to speak to an overflow crowd. Well, they didn't even fill the initial arena one-third of the way. And even though they spent all this time and all this money setting up an overflow area because they were, my God, they were so sure so many people were going to show up to hear his inspiring neo-Nazi message. And then it didn't happen. And they say, well, it's because of the teenagers. Well, the overflow area that was set up, yeah, maybe, you know, I think the teenagers played a significant role in that because even though they asked for these tickets that they planned to never, ever take – um, that's why the Trump campaign decided to step the overflow area because they go, we're not just going to get, you know, I mean, a million people ask for tickets. We're definitely going to get our, our 19,000 and then some. So spending the Trump campaign's money to set up that whole second area, and I saw the whole second area, that they, the overflow area they had. So it was, it was magnificent. They, they spared no expense. Stage, gigantic sound system. Yo, I'm in, I work in sound professionally. I know what this stuff costs. And then he speaks to his 6,200 supporters. He gets out there and he spreads a bunch of BS. So what I want to know is why. Why were there so few people there? Now, the good in me, like my best case scenario, is the people were not there because they are done with his BS. And his crap isn't selling to them anymore. And they are just done with him. That's my best case scenario. But once again, there are other factors. The first factor. Um, and I know that there are people that do not believe in this disease because my, my own father, who has disowned me, 
also does not believe in this disease. So I said, he'll have no problem filling that 19,000-seat arena. There will be plenty of people who don't believe in the disease and who want to sit through his BS, and they'll be there. And then when they weren't, they were asked to sign a waiver so that they could not sue the Trump campaign. So was that the reason that they were not there? I mean, if the president is making you sign a waiver saying that you can't sue them if you get COVID, then that would suggest that the president does believe in COVID and therefore some of his, some of his believers, his cult members, are going to go, what? Oh, it appears that he actually does believe in it. Or was it the TikTokers? Was it the K-pop bands? who requested all these tickets and made him think he had more on his hands than he really did? Or is it what I said that people are done with him? Let us not get so excited about this moment, even though the, the, the pictures of all those empty seats is about the best damn thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm not ready to assume that people are done with him yet. And when I talk to just about anybody, and obviously my circle is overwhelmingly progressive, um, and my progressive is, oh, he's on his way out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's easy to say that, okay? It's easy to say he's on his way out, and that's what it looks like. But um, back in 2016, none of us saw him on his way in. So, and I think it's, it's an unanswered question, and it really needs to be answered. So let us leave that one open for discussion. Perhaps revisit that on another day. The other thing, there was an article from Bloomberg that came out this past week that talked about how Russia and China really, really, really want Trump to get a second term. Why? He's not the president of their country. There are tons of things that they love about him. Um, But China is probably the most open when it comes to any of this stuff, because they have said, and they're on record, uh, folks that work for the Chinese government have said the fact that Donald Trump um, is, A, destabilizing the United States, and he is, whether you want to believe it or not, he is. They said the fact that he's destabilizing the United States is only helping China, raising the profile of China. They said the other thing is that the fact that he's breaking all of these trade deals with all of these allies that, that the United States has had for so long, well, that tells them that it's only going to strengthen their position in the world. And then with respect to Putin, every single thing that he's asked for, and it doesn't matter what it is or how detrimental it was to the United States, every single thing, including getting back into the G7, making it the G8 again, everything. Trump is either delivered or working on delivering. So um, to the patriots, to the conservative patriots, to the people that even the Trump campaign refers to as patriots, I have to ask you, if all of these world leaders and people were so offended when Obama would apologize for the embarrassing things that we did around the world, they'd say, he's on an apology tour. He's making America look weak. Well, Leaders of other countries have actually said, we love the weakened position that your president is putting you into. We love that he's breaking up all the norms and destroying all these relationships. We love that the United States is getting hurt and want him to be president again. With all of that, conservatives, 
I just have to ask, why do you still want him to be president? And it's not an unknown thing. It's plenty clear. They've said it. They want Donald Trump to get four more years so as to weaken the status and the standing of the United States. Of course, it's in Bloomberg and not at One America News or Fox News. So therefore, it's not true and it's not happening. Open question. Finally. Last. Finally. And I'm sorry I'm getting the show out late this week. I've been thinking about y'all. I want you to know I'm here. I want you to think about something. Qualified immunity. And it hit me this week. The qualified immunity, which are the protections, um, this gigantic umbrella of protections that was provided to police officers um, during the early 80s from the Supreme Court. And it effectively said they can't do their jobs if they fear retribution or they fear being sued. Um, they, fear, they, they, they fear the consequences of the things that happen to them during the course of doing their jobs. So they've got this massive blanket of protection. And that makes police, and we've seen it, especially in recent days, that makes them feel like they can do whatever they want. And then they do do whatever they want. And I go, is that not what the Second Amendment is? Is that not what the Castle Doctrine is? Which is where, you know, if someone comes to your house, you get to shoot them. Or is that not what the, the Stand Your Ground Law, where they say you shouldn't have to retreat. You should be able to kill anybody. So qualified immunity, it's a very low bar for police. To, if they say that they felt threatened at all, like there was one gentleman that got killed where they, you know, he made eye contact with the police and that was threatening enough. And, and he got away with murder. He got away with killing an unarmed black man. And then you think about, you know, the guy that, the guy that killed Trayvon Martin, you know, he saw Trayvon walking down the street, chased after him, wrestled with him and then shot him. The kid wasn't doing anything, but Zimmerman still walks free. And so when I thought about qualified immunity, castle jock doctrine, standard ground laws, and the Second Amendment, it hit me. I said Second Amendment is little more than qualified immunity for white people. The overwhelming majority of these Second Amendment nutbags are all white people, also overwhelmingly male. These laws, these, the castle doctrine, stand your ground, these gun laws, these, these laws that say uh, that firearms manufacturers cannot be sued for the destruction that their products do, they're all written by white men to protect other white men. Now, it doesn't always play out that way. Qualified immunity is a far more stronger law than, say, the Second Amendment or the, or the Castle Doctrine or the, or the Stand Your Ground laws. But its effect is the same thing. And ladies and gentlemen, I think white people are finally realizing this because the people I'm seeing marching in the streets are overwhelmingly white. And they're overwhelmingly saying that black lives matter. Hey, everybody, welcome to the party. Melvin's been here for my entire life. But I'm glad to see you, white people. I'm glad you're here. And so now that we realize that, 
it's not just the police, but were given the power to kill as many black people as they wanted, armed or unarmed, innocent or guilty. It also did the same thing to all these, like Ahmaud Arbery, who was doing nothing. Trayvon Martin, who was doing nothing. These, it's the same kind of law that protects police officers. We had the same kind of law for white people, and it was the Second Amendment. And be- between qualified immunity and the Second Amendment, these are little more than things that legalized murder as long as murder happened coming from a white person. As long as it was a white person, the perpetrator of that murder. I promise you, if an African-American tries to use the Castle Doctrine or the Stand Your Ground Law, it's not going to play out the same, especially if it goes in front of a white conservative judge. As always, what happens here on the show, the things that I say, you are well within your right to turn to me and say, Melvin, you are as nutty as a fruitcake, and you are wrong, and here's why you are wrong. Yo, T-F-C-Y-P... TFYCPO at gmail.com. Let me know what you think, and I'll even get at you, and I might even read your mail here on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here on the fire you can't put out. Our official home is TFYCPO.podbean.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash TFYCPO. Questions, comments, hate mail, just a general statement or inquiry. You can email us at TFYCPO at gmail.com. We work hard to not only inform, but also to keep an open dialogue with you, our listener base. So feel free to reach out to us. And as always, thank you for listening. We're the fire you can't put out of. We will prevail. Rejecting austerity in favor of prosperity. Special thanks to Kevin for producing. And thank you for listening. This is Melvin signing off. And now that I have woken you up, good morning.